Let's turn our Bibles to the Gospel according to Matthew. The Gospel according to Matthew found on page 807 in the black Bibles around you. There is one gospel, and there are four different accounts of the life of Jesus in the gospel. Sometimes we use that word differently in Christian circles. Matthew's gospel, Mark's gospel, Luke's gospel. I think the more appropriate way is as it's headed right here in these Bibles, the gospel according to Matthew, the one gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're going to look, starting today, at verse 1 of chapter 1, and for at least the next two years, we will be in the book of Matthew, and I do not mean that as an exaggeration. I think that's a conservative number. For at least the next two to three years, we will slowly work our way through the book, so congratulations, you're at the very beginning. I'm hoping that in three years, there'll be people that said, oh yeah, I came to embassy when we were in Matthew chapter 9. You remember that? That was like, you know, a year or two ago? Anyway, As we turn our Bibles there and we consider this first section of Matthew, I want you to think about how many people, especially this week, are going to get excited when they hear something that goes like this, and read these words on a screen, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, very familiar opening lines to a movie called Star Wars. I think in previous memories as I've gone to Star Wars movies in the theater, I've seen those scrolling words appear on the screen, and I hear cheers around me. Yeah, it's starting. There's excitement in the air. Just hearing the sound and seeing the words a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. There's anticipation for what's about to come. Or some of you that aren't Star Wars fans might remember these words from Jane Austen. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Quite an opening line to her book, Pride and Prejudice. Or in a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit. Mr. and Mrs. Dursley of number four, Privet Drive, were proud to say that they were perfectly normal. Thank you very much. Anyone know what that was from? Harry Potter. Or, of course, there is Charles Dickens, it was the best of times, the worst of times, it was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief, it was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light, it was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope, it was the winter of despair. We had everything before us, we had nothing before us. These, my friends, are a short survey of famous opening lines of movies and novels that capture our attention elicit excitement and joy and anticipation for what's about to come. Now I'd like you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1 and picture yourself as an average person thinking, maybe I want to learn about Jesus Christ. Read the New Testament. And then you open and read the following. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, 
and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jehokanai, and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shetiel, and Shetiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abuad, and Abuad the father of Elkayim, and Elkayim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zodak, and Zodak the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Iliud, and Iliud the father of Eliazar, and Eliazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And at this point, many people are thinking, I don't think I'm going to keep reading. You know, just wanted to open up the New Testament, read a little about Jesus, had all these hopes and fear, hopes and anticipations that, you know, this is the best-selling book of all time. Maybe I should give this a read. And you open up to Matthew, and you read a list of people that you have never heard of, and a bunch of names that most of us, including myself, cannot pronounce. Did Matthew mess up? Where's the... A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, kind of start to the story of Jesus. I'm willing to bet that many of you who are in this room that grew up going to church can't remember too many of these verses being read at a Christmas Eve service or sent in a Christmas card hanging on your refrigerator. At first glance, these opening lines of Matthew do not encourage that feel-good story and factor that lead people to say, oh, we're doing the genealogy today, my favorite. But this morning, my challenge and hope is that many of you will say, wow, I really do love that genealogy. And that, in fact, is a great way to open the story of Jesus. Furthermore, my hope and prayer is that as we look at who Jesus is, who he came from, and who he came for, that you will not simply just love the genealogy. Our hearts will be stirred to love the person to whom this genealogy points. So let's consider these questions one at a time. First, who is Jesus? What can we learn from this genealogy about who Jesus is? One of the main reasons we're studying Matthew's gospel is so we can answer that question for the next three years. Who is Jesus? To put it simply, the genealogy tells us Jesus is a king. That's the short answer to our first question. Jesus is a king, and that's the answer you see right in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Right away, we see that Jesus is the Christ. The word Christ means Messiah, or you could translate it the anointed one. It, It is not Jesus' last name. Some people get that confused. It is a title. It is Jesus the Christ, 
Prophets, priests, and kings would have been anointed in the Old Testament. By the time Jesus was born, many Jews were waiting for the anointed one, the Messiah. Matthew is telling us right from the start, in the very first verse, that Jesus, born of Mary, through the marriage of Joseph, he is that long-awaited one. Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, almost all Jews will place their family origins back to Abraham, but only a select few, especially during the days of Jesus, could claim that they were in line with the family of David. So this is saying something. This is quite a claim. Notice the way Matthew makes this point even more explicit in verse 6. And and Jesse, the father of David, the king. That should tip tip his hand a bit. It should give you a clue that this is his focus in giving this genealogy. He's Jesus, the son of David. Not just any ordinary Jew, someone in the line of David, the king. This is what is on Matthew's mind and his concern. Right from the very first verse of this genealogy to verse 6, and then the last verse of this genealogy, I think, is pointing us to the centrality of David. Now, when you look at verse 17, this last verse that I read to you, you might think, that doesn't look like David at all. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14, and then from David to the deportation to Babylon, they were 14, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14. And Some people question even just the historicity of the Bible, like that sounds too nice and neat and tidy. There's no way that there was just 14, 14, 14, could it? And the answer is no. Historically, that's not the point. You can compare genealogies in the Old Testament with this genealogy, and it doesn't match up. So therefore, the 14 has a symbol to it. There's a meaning behind it. And there's two possible explanations. The first is that 14 is the number that corresponds with David. The name David. If you take Hebrew letters and assign with them numerical associated numbers, David, when you add up the letters, D, V, D, it adds to 14. And this was not like a, oh, wow, that sounds like a a magic trick or some sort of special secret to unlock the Bible. This is just very common, normal way that Jews would have understood, oh yeah, 14, oh, David. The other explanation that could be what's going on here in this last verse is that 14 is two sets of seven. And if you have three sets of 14, that's how many sevens? That's six. So if Jesus is starting the seventh cycle, that means he is the perfect one, the one who's going to come and bring completion Either way, it seems as if this 14 is symbolic, and this 14 is to help point you to who Jesus is. Jesus is the king. He is the king who is going to bring the completion of the kingdom. He is the king who is of David, the number 14. Either way, I think we see from this passage that Jesus is a real king, not a pretend king. It doesn't start out once upon a time in a galaxy far, far away, a long time ago. This is not a fairy tale, my friends. When you open the New Testament, it starts out with facts. It starts with history, with genealogies. Now, that might seem boring on first read, but that's significant for us. This king that we're reading about is in human history. And his story is quite impressive. His resume is compelling. 
One author puts it this way, this genealogy is like a roll of drums, a fanfare of trumpets. It's a town crier shouting out to all of the people for their attention. Any first century Jew that starts reading this list would have started to see how impressive and compelling it is. It's like a great parade coming down the streets of Chicago or Palatine, and you see the first few people coming down, the great patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Then, of the tribe of Jacob, of the 12 tribes, the tribe of Judah, the one in Genesis is promised who would be the light to the world. That's a great way to begin this roll of names. It keeps going in the middle section, and you see David, and then Solomon, and then a whole slew of kings, many of whom were great, and many of whom were not so great. But all eyes would be looking to the one at the very end of this line, to whom would receive the greatest honor, and that would be Jesus, the Messiah. So what about you? Do you believe that this is who Jesus is? Now, when I ask that question, I don't mean, do you intellectually understand that the Bible teaches Jesus was a king? That's that's not what I'm asking. I'm asking, do you believe that this is who Jesus is now? When you look back at verse 1, the very first phrase gives us a hint that this Jesus is not just the king of the Jews from the son of Abraham. In fact, the very first few words of verse 1 sound like this, and I know many of you, if not most of you, do not know the original language of Greek that this is written on, but I think you might hear these words and know what they mean. Biblos, Genesis, Christos, Yesu Christos. Can you figure that out? Biblos, Genesis, Yesu Christos. Biblos sounds a lot like what? Bible, because the word means book, because that's what a Bible is. The Holy Bible is a collection of books. What about Genesis? What does that sound like? Genesis, because that's in fact what the word is. It's Genesis, the book of Genesis of Jesus Christ. Now, the word Genesis is the very word you read when you open up the first book of the Bible. Genesis, chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But the word Genesis means beginnings or origins. So it could very well be genealogy, but it also could just be the book of the origins of Jesus Christ. And the reason I say that is because if you go to Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, the Greek translation that the readers would have been familiar of when they read Matthew, it would be almost a direct quote of that Biblos, Genesis, and then goes on to tell genealogy. What I'm trying to say is that I think that Matthew is intentionally starting out his gospel this way, even though to you and me it does not sound like, ooh, once upon a time, oh, I'm getting excited. But you should. You should not only because of the names that are in it, because even the first two words of Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, Jesus is not just any ordinary king. Jesus is the king of all kings. He is the king of the new creation. Jesus is starting a brand new kingdom, not of this world, from another realm or dimension, heaven. And Matthew wants you to be thinking when you read his first verse, Jesus is that king. So do you believe it? Do you believe that he is that king right now? Jesus having all authority in heaven and on earth. 
Does that sound familiar, by the way? Because that's the last few verses of Matthew's gospel. I don't think it is an accident that he begins with Jesus the King, the one that reminds you of the King who spoke all of creation into existence in Genesis 1. That same King has now, through his death, burial, resurrection, ascension to the heaven, the right hand of the Father has all authority in heaven and on earth. So, I want to ask you again. Do you currently live as if Jesus is the king of your life, with all authority in heaven and on earth? My fear is, myself included, many of us in this room do not live like Jesus is the king. We live like he was a king. And that is not the claim that's being made here in Matthew. Jesus is right now reigning and ruling as king. Is he your king? Yes, he is. The question is, are you living in light of that? Or are you rejecting his authority over your life? He is your king. It's it's not a question of whether he is or isn't. Matthew is proclaiming and telling he is. So have you accepted that? Have you repented of your authority that you've derived for yourself and said, no, I'm the authority of my life? Or have you accepted the the truth, the claim, Christ is Lord? Recently, I had a breakfast conversation with a a non-Christian, and this was our conversation. And I think this is an excellent way for you to talk about Jesus with someone. This young man grew up in a Catholic background, so he had a general understanding of Jesus. He had a general understanding of the Bible. And so I just asked him, Hey, do you believe that Jesus existed? He said, yeah, I do. I I really believe he walked on this earth and existed. So do you believe that he was who he said he was? And and he died on a cross and he he rose from the dead. And he said, absolutely, I, I, I do. Where do you think Jesus is right now? And what do you think he's doing? And he says, Phil, i got to be honest. I don't think I've ever thought about that. I want you to know that the answer to that question makes all the difference in your life and in mine. Where do you think Jesus is right now? And what do you think he's doing? He's on the throne, and he is reigning and ruling, and he is the king of all the universe right now. As I was meditating on this passage earlier this week, and I was reading Matthew chapter 1, and it didn't take long for me to start to think, man, this genealogy... What am I going to say? It's so boring. No. I got convicted very quickly to realize how often do we not treat Jesus as king? How often do you and I, we bow before him and pray and we don't talk and speak to him with the honor and the authority that he he has and and praise him as such? Even even as I was praying earlier in, in the week, on Monday night, I can remember. I started praying over this passage, praying for this week. I just felt this guilty knife into my chest, you know? Phil, if there was a human king right here in this room, would you just be slouching in your chair, praying casually? Would there be any sense of reverence, of awe, of humility, a sense of the the weightiness of it? Would it even change your posture? Right now, if there's an earthly king in front of you, what do you think you would be doing? Now, I'm not suggesting that everybody must pray in a specific kind of posture. I don't think the scriptures teach us that. But it is very common in the scriptures. 
That when you pray, when you see him and you think being in his presence, I just immediately fell to my knees. It seemed like the only immediate response to do when the Lord was drawing me to this truth that Jesus is a king. And if I would give an earthly person that kind of reverence and awe, why, why would I not? Unless, unless I don't actually believe he's alive. Unless I actually believe he's not listening and I'm just talking into the air. Do you see what I'm saying, friends? Where is Jesus right now? And, and what is he doing? Well, my friend, he is alive. And he's reigning and ruling. And he came into the earth as king, and he still is king. Matthew's gospel doesn't end, and, and then he went away, and yeah, we don't know where he's at. But one day we hope he'll come back. That's not the story of the gospel. He's a king then, he's a king now. How might that change your attitude? How might it change your posture in prayer? Whether you want to live like Jesus is your king and let that change you will not change the reality that he is. Now, there are so many rulers and kingdoms in this world who are going about their business and they are acting like their king. There are many humans and individuals, some of us. We act as if Jesus is dead or aloof or far off or spiritualized. And a few weeks ago, I was reading a book for my schoolwork that I've been doing on the ascension of Jesus, and I'm still really trying to wrestle and recover from one of the passages I read in this book. Here's one of the examples of what it said. There is a human tendency to spiritualize the truth that Jesus is ruling the world as our king. And when we spiritualize this reality, Jesus no longer seems a threat to the rulers of this world. Now, that's what caught my attention. A threat? What, what do you mean, a threat? How? How is Jesus a threat? So I kept reading. And the author says, A spiritualized Jesus will allow the kings of this world to run free without any word or restraint from the church. It allows the church then to run after the things of this world without any worries about the return of the embodied incarnate king. There is a real human king reigning and ruling over the world from heaven right now. He is not aloof with the affairs of the earth below. All other powers on earth are temporary, and they are derived from him. As Romans 13:1 asserts, there is no authority except that which has been established by God. This, then, is a truly threatening message to anyone and all who make claims of their own authority. It is no wonder, then, why so many earthly rulers and people will try and silence the message of the church with force and often with violence. If you made it downstairs earlier this morning for breakfast, you do not need a better illustration that the message that Jesus Christ is king is a threat to the people who would claim their own kingdoms, their own authority. The story of Christmas, in fact, in just a few weeks, Lord willing, will show that it is a threat to King Herod. And he does not want anything to do with another king challenging and rivaling his throne. And my friend, it's not just the rulers and the government leaders of this world. It is us. It is you and me. It is our own hearts. When we decide that we would like to spiritualize the message of Jesus and not live as if he's our king, then on what authority or what basis are you living your life? The kingdoms of this world? Or are you your own king? Worst of all. This Christmas season, I'm praying that many of us, as we hear some of the familiar songs, as we hear some of the familiar passages of Scripture, like take, for example, Isaiah chapter 9. 
when you hear these words, may God open our eyes to see Christ as our king who has no limits to his rule or reign. It will never end. Isaiah chapter 9, for to us a child is born. To us a son is, go- is given. And the government, the kingdom will be on his shoulders. And his name shall be called the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Here in the United States, many people are arguing all the time, should our government be big or little? Should we have big federal government, little federal government? Well, the Bible says God has a big government. You see that in Isaiah 9? But Isaiah is not talking about America's federal government. He's talking about the government and the kingdom of Jesus. He says the government of the kingdom should be on the shoulders of the child who is born, the son who is given. And of his government, it will increase and increase and it will have no end. It will last forever. My friend, this is the claim of Christmas. Jesus Christ is the one true ruler. This is the government and the political party that we should give ourselves allegiance to. I remember listening to a Lloyd-Jones sermon when I was living in Washington, D.C., and I was going for a jog through the Capitol, and it was during Christmas time. And if you've never listened to Martin Lloyd-Jones, there's some recordings of his preaching, even though he hated people recording his preaching. He's like, you have to be there live. He believed in the experience of it. Anyway, Lloyd-Jones was a British doctor, not unlike our testimony that you heard earlier today, a medical doctor. And then at the end of his doctoral school and at the beginning of his doctoral practice, he became convinced he should go into the ministry and preach. And this man had a flourishing ministry in London. And some of his sermons have been some of the most like, wow, that was, that was good. And, and I don't know if, if you guys appreciate it, but, you know, sometimes you hear somebody from a different place, and they got that thick accent. And, and at this point, he's later on in his ministry, he's got this old, deep voice, you know, and he says things like, the wrath of God, you know, like, and he's got that British accent and all those things. So, so there's just even these phrases that still stick in my head. And I remember he was preaching on Isaiah chapter 9, and the increase of the government of Jesus will increase and have no end. And it was stirring my heart and my affections as I'm running through political government buildings. And I keep hearing the words, no, no, these things are temporary. They're derived. This is the true kingdom. This is the true king. And then at one point in the sermon, Lloyd-Jones, he kept using the phrase of the song we're about to sing as I close out the sermon and we sing during the Lord's Supper. It's from Charles Wesley's hymn, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. And the second verse, born a child, yet a king he would say. And he just kept repeating it over and over again. And it helped me realize at that Christmas season as I'm looking at what many people call the most important, most powerful city of the world. I'm like, they've got nothing. D.C. is nothing compared to the kingdom of Jesus. Born a child, lowly in a manger. Yet a king, I tell you. At least that's how. My best Lloyd-Jones impression. I can understand why many people don't trust politicians working in Washington, D.C. to build a bigger federal government. Flawed and broken people often mess up even best plans. But I can't understand why any of you would reject a kingdom like this. Justice, righteousness, of the increase of his peace, there will be no end. 
Do you want to become a citizen of this kingdom? Would you like to make Christ your king and officially join the Jesus political party? You can become a member of embassy and be an ambassador, an official representative of Christ's kingdom. This is, in fact, the outpost that he has set up on the earth for his kingdom. If that interests you, my friend, let me, know, let, let me help you know that you can do this today. You can repent of your sins. You can repent of your former allegiances to any other rulers, including yourself, and say, Christ is the king. He is my king. And as we saw at the start of this message, who is Jesus? Who did he come from? And who did he come for? Will help us answer this question as to whether or not Christ is your king and the kind of people that he wants in his kingdom. The last two questions I'm going to, in fact, put together, and you'll see why. So there's really just two points. Who is Jesus? Answer, he's a king. In fact, he is the king. Second two questions. Who did he come from, and who did he come for? Let's consider those as we close this message. I'm going to put these two together because the family that Jesus comes from anticipates the family that Jesus came for. That's the line that has had my heart stirred all week. Let me say it again. The family that Jesus comes from anticipates the family that he has come for. What kind of family has Jesus come from? Well, we should know very plainly from our first point that he comes from a royal family. An impressive and a compelling list of names, for sure. But Matthew does great efforts here to help us see that this is not just a list of great kings and heroes. There are a few strange and, I would say, purposeful quirks and oddities about this list that you should not skim over and you should meditate on beyond today and this morning. As we consider this point, I want you to think about the sort of thing that you would normally put on your job resume. Well, I was able to get into a good school like Northwestern, the University of Chicago, an Ivy League school like Harvard or Yale. Those are the sort of things you put on there. Here's my educational pedigree. Here's the great job I had where I was this CEO or the leader of this. And here's my references of people who will only speak positive things about me, right? This is what we do. This is what resumes are. How many people put on there? I got into Harvard, and I almost flunked out three times because I partied too much. Like, nobody puts that line in there. Constant procrastinator, just barely squeezed through college. Skills, able to write papers at one o'clock in the morning. You know, like, no, no, you don't write that on your resume. But it's as if Matthew didn't get that clue. It's as if Matthew, as he's writing the resume for Jesus, he says, let's make sure everyone knows who he truly came from. And let's be real and honest about the family of Jesus. So, for example, look down at verse 3. And notice the short little phrase, Zerah by Tamar. Now, this is different. If you're reading verses 2 and following, you notice Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. Now, which of these earlier men did you hear about the woman that helped conceive the child? Well, you don't, and so it should kind of startle you. Well, Matthew, why'd you do that? Why did you include Tamar? 
Now I understand these other men, but in a woman, Tamar's a woman's name. And we read in the book of Genesis, we learn a little bit about this woman. And so many people have suggested that, well, maybe because of how odd it is that a woman is in here, and that in Middle Eastern genealogies, you do not put women in a genealogy. You just don't do that. Now, even for sake of reference, you could turn over to Luke chapter 3. That genealogy of Jesus, that has like, what is it, 60-some names? 76 men, and not a single reference to a woman. So even in the Bible, there's another genealogy, and there's, there's not a single woman reference. What's Matthew doing here? You know, one example of an ancient book called Sirach, written around the same time of the New Testament, says, let us now praise the famous men, and then goes on for six chapters, listing all men, not a single woman. Does this help you understand the oddity of by Tamar? If you're trying to set the resume of Jesus up, you don't include women if you're in the Middle East. If you're trying to make sure everyone knows, hey, this is, this is the heir to the throne, and look where he came from. Now, I'm not convinced that the only reason Matthew mentions Tamar is simply to show that Jesus includes women, Matthew includes women, in the genealogy because he includes women in his kingdom. That, my friends, is true. And I, I don't think we should pass over that idea, but that does not, I think, do justice to what we see the rest of the genealogy. When you look down at verse 5, you see this happen two more times. Look at verse 5, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. There he does it again. And then Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. Two more times in verse 5, a woman is being mentioned and breaks the rhythmic pattern of all these other names. Now, just in case some of you are wondering, there are a lot of skips in the genealogy. Remember, the 14 number is a symbolic number. And the word father of does not necessarily mean like dad and then son. It means ancestor. So it could just be like, look, in the family line, the ancestor of, so don't take it the way you would normally hear the word father in English. Realize that it, it, it very often is in this case, the human father that succeeds, that has a child, but it could just be the ancestor. But we still need to ask, why these women? We're up to now three different women, Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. And there's one more instance. When we look down, we see in verse 6, an even more peculiar listing of a woman. If you see in verse 6, and David was the father of Sol Solomon by the wife of Uriah. We don't even get her name. But anybody who knows the Old Testament should know that King David committed adultery with Uriah's wife. Her name was Bathsheba. So, what is going on here? What would you guess? Why did Matthew seemingly, when he's got these 14 numbers, he's intentional about who he includes, he skips over some. Why include four women? Well, first, where are all of these women from? Bathsheba was married to Uriah. That's quite plain in verse 6, right? Well, Uriah was a Hittite, meaning by marriage she becomes a Hittite. Second, it should be fresh in all of your minds that you were here. In the Ruth series, where's Ruth from? She's from Moab. She's a Moabite. How about Rahab? She's a Canaanite. Now, we don't know for sure, but it seems as if Tamar also was a Gentile. But three out of four for sure 
seem like these women aren't just any women. He's not just simply putting women for the sake of women. He's putting foreign women in the genealogy. Hmm, a Hittite, a Moabite, a Canaanite. Think about this for one second. If Jesus is going to be in the male line of King David, then all of those men must be ethnically Jews, correct? Yes, that's how that thing works. Therefore, the only way for Matthew to include a non-Jew at the beginning of his gospel, so that he begins and ends with the mission that Jesus is the king of all nations, is to include women. And so he does. The same Jesus who is ruler and reigning and has all authority in heaven and earth and says what? Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to, command, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And lo, I'll be with you to the ends of the age. That end of Matthew's gospel is being echoed. It is being foretasted here in Matthew's genealogy at the beginning of his gospel. Who Jesus comes from, a family of mixed nations, by these different women, is who is he going to all the nations? For in fact, this was the original intention of being from the son of Abraham from the beginning. God called Abraham and said, I will make you the father of many nations. That's in fact what Abraham means, father of the many nations, Avraham. So as Ken Bailey says, the startling fact of the presence of these women in a men's only club like a genealogy would catch the attention of any first century reader or listener. So my question to you, is this catching your attention? Are you noticing and seeing how Jesus' family comes and anticipates who he has come for, all nations? Jesus has come from a people from a variety of nations and backgrounds, and he will be the king over all of these nations and backgrounds in just a few short years after he dies, is buried, he is risen, and now reigning on the throne. I think all of us as a church need to start asking ourselves, how are we doing at representing Jesus, reaching out to the foreigners, the oppressed, the marginalized of our community? And doesn't it seem as if Matthew is not just acknowledging these people, But by including them in his genealogy, he is honoring them? I think if that's the case, then it would not be enough for us to simply reach out to foreigners and outcasts. But as we do so, bring them in, exalt and infirm the great value that they are in God's eyes. My friends, this is the mission of our church. And so the first thing we see about these women that unites all of them is that they're foreigners, they're outsiders. The second thing that you need to see about these four women is that all of them gave birth to children under, let's just say, unusual circumstances to play it safe. With maybe the exception of Ruth, all of the other women, the other three, clearly partake in illicit sexual behavior to bring about the birth of children. Tamar dresses up like a prostitute and has an incestuous relationship with her father-in-law. Genesis chapter 38. Rahab just was a prostitute. Bathsheba took a bath that could be easily seen by David. She could be a victim or she could be really immodest. Middle Eastern women are not immodest. For her to be exposed in the middle of the day while her husband is gone could be quite suggestive. Either way, she is either a victim or part of the crime. And all of these women seem to have very unusual and strange and sometimes downright sinful circumstances. 
to the child that continues the line of Jesus. All this should remind us of another woman. In fact, the fifth woman in the genealogy, the one we shouldn't forget, the final woman, Mary. Mary is the ultimate example of someone who gives birth to a child in some very strange circumstances. And even though she never sinned, everyone else thought she did. Don't you see, my friend? These five women are included in the line that leads to Jesus so that you know that you can be included in the line that comes from Jesus. Matthew's genealogy will include the outcasts, the scandalous sinners, the foreigners, It's not just these women who are scandalous sinners, by the way. Let's not just say, oh, the women, oh, yeah, of course. David committed adultery too. Solomon had a whole whole bunch of women. Let's just put it at that. And so, so many times we might say, it doesn't matter where you came from. All that matters is where you're going. But I'd say in the case of Jesus, it really does matter where he came from. And it shows where he's going. Jesus came from a family with foreigners because he'd become a foreigner. He would go to his family, as John's gospel in chapter 1 says. He came to his own, and his own knew him not. Jesus came from a family with outcasts because just like them, he would go and be outcast and suffer outside the camp as he hung on a cross. Jesus came from a family of sinners because even though he knew no sin, on the cross he would become sin for us. Jesus left his heavenly family and came to the earth, humbled, taking on human flesh, fully God, fully man, and through his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension to the right hand of the Father, he now can bring us to God. Where Jesus came from, shows us where he's going in Matthew's gospel. This means everything for you and me because now it doesn't matter where you've come from. Now it doesn't matter what you have done because of what Jesus has done. Is there room in Jesus' kingdom for you, my friend? Can you join the Jesus political party? You might feel like an outcast, but Matthew chapter 1 and its genealogy says you're not. Through the blood of Jesus, you can be brought close. You may feel worthless, but through the gospel, Jesus has purchased you with the universe's most valuable possession that it has ever seen, the blood of Jesus. And you may think that God's plans are over for you, but this genealogy shows for many people it's just the beginning. Let's pray together.